0: Cover crops seem to have become one of the new buzzwords in agriculture. With fertilizer prices hitting $1,000 a ton this year, perhaps it's no big surprise. Of course, non-synthetic inputs like cover crops were going to become more appealing to producers. But there's another factor in all this. Over the last few years, there's been a growing drive among producers to understand and work with soil biology. And that's where cover crops shine. Cover crops aren't just about swapping out one input for another. Cover crops are also feed for livestock and pollinators, cash crops, improvers of water infiltration, suppressors of weeds, and builders of soil carbon. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're talking cover crops.
1: So right now I'm living in Olds. I'm doing some consulting work for Imperial Seeds and doing some independent work with uh, through the, the company we have, uh, Cover Crops Canada. So uh, I spend most of my winter going around doing presentations and uh, helping helping and coaching farmers how to kick the <laughs> kick the, the input habit and get into regenerative ag, agriculture
0: management. Well, it took us four years, but as you can tell, we're finally doing an episode on Cover Crops. Not sure why it took us this long either. We did intercropping in episode 34, alley cropping in episode 32, even perennial grains in episode 21, but somehow no cover crop episodes until now. The person you heard introducing himself was Kevin Elmy of Cover Crops Canada. He also works for Imperial Seeds. Cover Crops Canada provides learning resources and consulting services to agriculture producers who are interested in putting in a cover crop imperial seeds is an outfit based in winnipeg specializing in forage seeds kevin himself is based in saskatchewan but he's in alberta quite often for work Uh, i believe he was in Olds recently he's also one of the go-to people in the prairies when it comes to cover crops he's even written a book which is called cover cropping in western canada so i thought maybe we could start with a simple yet very important question and it's a question most of us are probably too embarrassed to ask what is a cover crop exactly? If you Google it, you'll find lots of articles talking about the diverse benefits of putting in a cover crop. Not too many definitions though. Simply put, a cover crop is using plants, usually multiple species of plants to cover your soil, or as Kevin puts it, build that green armor to protect your soil. I realize this sounds a lot like seeding cropland back to pasture, but cover crops are actually more about annuals and biannuals. Although I suppose depending on your goals, which by the way, as an aside here, that's a recurring theme in this episode, a lot of it does depend on your goals, but depending on your goals, maybe you could work in some perennials. So if you're a grain farmer listening to this right now, you can rest assured if you start experimenting with cover crops or working them into your rotation, you don't have to become a rancher. You can remain a grain farmer. That being said, you might want to work with a rancher if you're going to do this kind of stuff. Perhaps the big difference between a cover crop and a monocrop like wheat or canola is that with a cover crop, what is happening below ground is equally, if not more important than what is happening above ground. But what the heck am I talking about here? Listen to what Kevin has to say about the importance of having something green and growing in your soil. So increasing
1: the plant diversity and and, uh, having that maintain that living root in the soil is really important because number one, when a plant is in the vegetative stage, it will release up to 80% of the carbon it it captures through photosynthesis as a root exudate. And the more of the root exudates we can be pumping into the soil, that means we're gonna be able to keep the biology alive that much longer. When we start adding in different plants, So different functional plant groups, what's going to happen is those different plants are going to have different types of root exudates, which is then going to support a lot of the other uh, biology in the soil. So different types of bacteria, other microbes. And so when we when we have a plant that goes that changes from the vegetative stage to the reproductive stage so like our spring cereals what happens is when it goes to the reproductive stage the root exudates then change so they're less prone to microbial degradation so they don't get broken down by the microbes this year what the plan is dr mere he talks about nature's intelligence which Beautiful phrase. So one of the things that, that the plants do is they have these, these root exudates that are harder for the microbes to break down because it's not setting up for the microbes now. It's setting up for the seed that is in the seed head. So the plant is now setting up the soil so that next spring, the microbes have something to eat. So when those seeds hit the ground and the seedlings start growing, they already have the some root exudates that's feeding the biology to then supply nutrients for that that young growing plant so once again nature's intelligence unbelievable system once we understand what it's trying to do
0: obviously for us at rural roots the climate solutions the podcast that's all about highlighting the management practices and farm tech that are good for the climate and good for the farm something that's putting more carbon in the soil is a okay with us If carbon is one of the main currencies soil microbes use in their transactions, we want to get as much of that currency into that microbial economy and get that economy moving at a decent pace. However, I suppose you could argue in Alberta right now, nobody's really paying you a decent wage to put carbon in the soil. At least not yet. Feeding soil biology sounds nice, but it doesn't feed your family. At least not directly. I get it. Above ground yields cannot be ignored. So how then is a cover crop going to help your farming operation stay resilient and stay profitable? Here's what Kevin has to say about some of the more mm, overarching benefits of cover crops.
1: And the real neat thing about this whole scenario and, you know, whether you call it cover, copper, regen, egg, or whatever title you want to call it, when we are looking at all of the problems we have in agriculture today, the take-home message is, and the solution to all of this directly, indirectly, is getting more functional carbon, active carbon in our soils. When we get functional carbon in our soils, our problems disappear. It's intimidating. Like I said, the first step is the scariest because where do I start? But if you have that green growing plant in the vegetative stage for as many days as you can, and that's the only thing that you do and you don't have livestock and you're not short-circuiting the, the, the system, we're better off.
0: So at the end of the day?
1: But at the end of the day, what we want to do and what I do is I'm thinking both above ground and below ground. I want to be able to have this diversity, fill up that whole canopy above ground and when i'm looking at below ground i want to be thinking about you know which ones are tap roots which ones are fibrous which ones are the warm season species cool season species the annuals biennials, because that's all going to be accelerating how we build soil
0: have i sold you on cover crops yet huh still skeptical eh well good thing we've got a solid 50 minutes of kevin explaining cover crops coming your way the presentation by Kevin you're about to hear was a webinar he did for us back in April of this year. In this episode, you're going to hear the presentation only, not the Q&A. And if you're curious, we got so many great questions during the Q&A, the uh, webinar went from what was supposed to be an hour long webinar to a two hour webinar. If you actually want to watch the webinar recording and listen to the q and I highly recommend going to our YouTube channel.
1: When we start talking about cover crop lands, you know, the scary part, the scariest part of getting into the cover cropping is deciding to do it because, you know, all of the fears of, you know, I, I, I can't afford a, a wreck. When we decide to get into it, now the most intimidating part of it is deciding what we're going to be using in this mix that we're going to be using. So, you know, what species are we going to use? How many species do we use? When are we going to seed it? How are we going to manage it? What are, what are our desired outcomes? So the first step that we need to do is set goals. And as a farmer, I hate setting goals because if we're looking at production goals, mother nature is going to have one of the largest influences on what our yields are going to be. But in this case, when we are looking at setting goals for setting cover crops and regen ag, what we're going to be doing is where do we want to be six months from now, year from now, five years from now? And once again, depending on what your goals are and and, and, how, You know, different things like that. It could be, you know, in in this case, you know, we need feed. Okay. We're going to be producing some feed. Are we going to hay it? Are we going to silage it? Are we going to graze it? If we're grazing it, are we continuous grazing, rotational grazing, or stockpile grazing? If we're going to be looking at soil improvement goals, so are we looking at water infiltration, erosion control, weed suppression? Are we looking at improving our nutrient cycling or building organic matter? When we start looking at this, now what we need to take into account is what are we dealing with? What's our natural resource inventory? So what kind of soil texture or textures are we dealing with on that field or, or your farm? Is there any uh, salinity concerns? Topography, uh, like are we dealing with flatland, land, low land, uh, steeply sloped, erodible? What kind of topography do we have and, and how many different types do we have? What kind of vegetation is growing on there right now? And then the natural and man main features. So do we have a, uh, a, a rocky uh, ridge that we have to worry about or trying to manage, or do we have a, a railway, rail line going across through through one of the quarters? Because that's going to influence some of the, the soil hydrology, how the water moves. Uh, it's gonna influence, uh, you know, there, there, in order to, to build that railway crossing going through the, through the land, there's going to be some excavation work. So, you know, there's going to be some some changes in in how that, that soil looks like around that. And then the other one that's really important is what plants or what weeds are growing. There's a book that I highly recommend for people to buy and it is, you can get it through Acres USA and it is When Weeds Talk by J.L. McCammon. That book is, it's a thanks it's about 25 bucks us so relatively cheap and what i like about it is number one it tells you you know the weeds what is the role of weeds in our ecosystems when we start looking at individual species it gives you the conditions that gives that those plants those weeds the ecological advantage why they're growing so when we look at something like red root pigweed if you tell me you have red root pigweed growing that tells me that in your system you have high nitrates in your system and so there's some really easy ways of of tying up that nitrate make sure we don't create this excess nitrate so that we then create a, a, a weed issue looking and observing what weeds are growing is really crucial in finding out what the soil is telling us and what we need to do for change. When we start looking at the logistics, when we seeding, how are you seeding? So are we going to be doing some broadcasting or are we looking at drilling it in when you're seeding. So are we looking at, you know, early spring, late spring, into the summer, into the fall or dormant seeding in the fall? Uh, what is the season forecast? Uh, another really important thing. And one of the things I've been investing in is this uh, guy called Drew Lerner. He runs uh, World Weather out of uh, Kansas City. And what he does is he specializes in agriculture weather forecasts. And so the the really interesting thing is this past fall, he was talking about this high pressure ridge that was going to develop over Western Canada. And it was going to be centered over Alberta somewhere. And he didn't know how high, how north it was going to go, how far south. And the neat thing with it is he nailed it. And so when you're going through and, and with the weather systems, um, most of the weather we get are either from the Alaska lows, or they come from Vancouver or they come from California. So these Colorado Clippers. And with that high pressure system going over Alberta, most of the systems he said from Alaska are going to go up over north of into in through the piece over the northern Saskatchewan and then come back on the backside over eastern Saskatchewan and that's where all the snow is going to be dumped and if you know anybody in eastern Saskatchewan there is a lot of snow there and then this this clipper that's coming in from California now hitting hitting southern Manitoba once again it it dipped below this this high tref- pressure trough and uh, is currently hitting hitting Winnipeg and he was talking about all this stuff in October i find he's a really good resource for for helping uh, identify what the the trends in the weather are going to be so the other thing we want to know about the cover crop is how are we planning on terminating this this blend? So are we looking at doing cultivation? Are we looking at herbicide? Are we grazing it? Do we want the frost to take it out at the first frost? Do we want that to be green right up until the snow flies, or do we want it to overwinter? So those are the you know some of the options that we have. This is our high tech zero till drill that we were using on the farm. So it's a 1986 Orgo 8800 air seater, you know, most of the time I was using one and three quarter inch hole openers, it was getting the job done. So do you need to go and get a disc drill? It gives you more options. But if you have something like this, you just need to know the, what your limitations of that equipment is. So if I went in and used a sweep or a, a spoon that was pointing forward on the C shank on this drill, what would happen is all of that residue would start wrapping around it. Because it's a hole opener that was going straight up and down, all that residue would flow through. And because we have a green plant that I was seeding into, it was anchored into the ground so it wasn't getting pulled out. Whereas if it was a canola stubble that got sprayed out or a cereal seeding into that, if the plants were dead, I'd be pulling the roots out. And then once again, it'd be creating piles and creating problems. So it's knowing what kind of uh, the limitations of that, that piece of equipment is. So when we are going through and we're doing this planning, when we're developing this system we need to do a bunch of pre-planning and so you know thinking this time of year planning that cover crop when i'm going to do it and once again like every other good plan plans change but what steve groff has said and always said is we need to treat cover crops like your cash crop and that's you know so true because if you were going to go out you know start making decisions in the middle of may what you're planning on growing for cash crops this coming year, that would be really stressful. And most likely there'd be a lot of (laughs) negative issues that were were gonna be happening. So having a plan in place beforehand makes, you know, the the success rate way higher on these cover crops. And the other thing is making sure that you have good resources to lean back on. So if you have a, a mentor of someone that is already doing cover cropping, it makes life so much easier so that this way you can say, hey, how are you doing this? How are you doing that? are you doing, you know, what kind of seeding rates, what species, it makes a a real big difference in in, once again, success.
0: So step one with a cover crop is setting goals, which is probably going to be the hardest step, if not the most time consuming step. But it is a step you're going to want to take your time to do right. Those goals give you a handy framework you can use to plug everything else in later on. Kevin Elmy dropped a few names there. He does that a lot in this episode. Uh, He's one of those guys who seems like he reads tons of books. But Drew Lerner is an agriculture meteorologist and the founder of World Weather Inc. in Kansas. He actually presented to the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission back in February. And this is the interesting thing. Back in February, he called for precipitation to hit the prairies after seeding, so from June onwards, which pretty much what happened in the end. Steve Groff, so that guy who said you need to treat a cover crop like a cash crop, is an agriculture producer in Pennsylvania and a big supporter of cover crops and regenerative agriculture. He has a book and the title of that book is The Future Proof Farm. Up next, Kevin gets into the principles he uses when it comes to cover crops and explains step number two, understanding the functions of the plant groups you could have in a cover crop. So once we have our goal
1: set, now we can start talking about species that we're going to be planning on using. And once again, these species, when we start selecting them, we're going to be basing the species selection on our goals, our climate, our logistics, and crop crop rotation. All of those will influence which species we, we want to use and which ones we do not want to use. At the end of the day, what we're looking for when we're using these cover crops in, a, in our rotation and in, in our management is number one, we want to increase our plant diversity that we're, we're growing on the land. Number two, we want to in, in, well, we want to make sure that we we have a green growing plant in the vegetative stage throughout that whole growing season. We want to reduce the amount of tillage we use. We want to reduce the amount of synthetics, and if possible, incorporate livestock. Get those livestock out on the land, and those are the core soil health principles that I go on. You'll see in, in some of these soil health principles, you'll see about uh, you know uh, maintaining soil armor. And I use the soil armor between the, the green growing plant and reducing tillage. If we're reducing amount of tillage, we're going to have more straw laying on the surface and having that green plant, now we have a, a green armor on top of that soil. Those are the keys that I go on. And it's really interesting how the the more of those you incorporate, how that soil then positively responds to it. In this picture, there's a a bison producer up in the the north of of Lloyd-Minister. I did up two blends for him about eight years ago. And he said, okay, I got six acres and show me what cover crops can do. He said, be under 75 bucks an acre. But let's see what happens. So this picture was taken uh, in the end of June, end of July, and it was extremely hard to walk through. So we had lots of diversity. We had you know the different functional plant groups growing. That was one of the years that rained, so it got had enough rain to, to to keep those plants growing. When Avery looked at that Google Earth the, just this past winter. He said, Google Earth, the, the, so this is a few years after he grew this cover crop, and then he grazed it off. Six years later, Google Earth, he could still see the results of having that high production, high grazed area in subsequent crops that he was growing. It was, uh, it was really interesting to, to see the, the residual effect of, of that. So increasing the plant diversity and, and uh, having that maintain that living root in the soil is really important because number one, when a plant is in the vegetative stage, it will release up to 80% of the carbon it, it captures through photosynthesis as a root exudate. And the more of the root exudates we can be pumping into the soil, that means we're going to be able to keep the biology alive that much longer. When we start adding in different plants, so different functional plant groups what's going to happen is those different plants are going to have different types of root exudates, which is then going to support a lot of the other biology in the soil. So different types of bacteria, other microbes. And so when we when we have a plant that goes that changes from the vegetative stage to the reproductive stage so like our spring cereals what happens is when it goes to the reproductive stage the root exudates then change so they're less prone to microbial degradation so they don't get broken down by the microbes this year what the plan is nate once again uh, dr mir he talks about nature's intelligence which Beautiful phrase. So one of the things that, that the plants do is they have these, these root exudates that are harder for the microbes to break down because it's not setting up for the microbes now. It's setting up for the seed that is in the seed head. So the plant is now setting up the soil so that next spring, the microbes have something to eat. So when those seeds hit the ground and the seedlings start growing, they already have the some root exudates to feeding the biology to then supply nutrients for that that young growing plant so once again nature's intelligence unbelievable system once we understand what it's trying to do when we're looking at cover crops the big things i tell people not to do is avoid future green contamination and so when we look at using something like fall rye you seed fall rye, and this is in a a green situation so if you seed fall rye, and they use a lot of that in in the states and they call it cereal rye and what they'll do is they'll they'll take their their soybeans off seed fall rye it overwinters they terminate it they seed the the corn and everything is is groovy now the problem growing in western canada is because we grow a lot of small cereals what happens if we don't get 100% kill on that fall rye and that fall rye shows up in our wheat or our barley or our oats now we have mixed grain which doesn't pay as well as what uh, pure crop would would pay And it's really hard to clean out. So it's a a bit of an issue there. For the insect bridges, one of the things we have to watch if we're growing canola or mustard, if we try to incorporate radish into that or, or turnips and seed it in the fall, either before or after, if we seed radishes and turnips in the fall and then we grow canola next year, well, because they're brassicas, those turnips and radishes are going to feed your flea beetles. They're going to overwinter underneath that residue of that turnip and radish. When you see the canola, the flea beetles are there. They're hungry. They're going to really damage your your canola. On the flip side, you harvest your canola and you seed turnips and radish. Well, the flea beetles are already there. You harvest your canola. You have your radishes and turnips seeded. Flea beetles are there. They're hungry. They're going to destroy all of your, your seeded seedlings. You have to watch that. Uh, when we look at the disease vectors, and this is going to be things like we can look at uh, rhizoptonia, pythium, things like that. So once again, if we're growing tight canola in rotation, even club root, uh, those could be vectors of of some diseases. So we have to watch making sure we're, we're rotating our our functional plant groups. And then our antagonism. So basically, allelopathy is the biggest one there. And and going to go back to fall rye. When we have fall rye, there's two area, two times that the allelopathy is going to be an issue. Number one, when it's in the vegetative stage, because it's going to be leaking out all these root exudates. And with those root exudates are going to be some allelopathic chemicals in that root exudate, which that is going to suppress any weed growth. And with fall rye and allelopathy, it doesn't know the difference between a cover crop and a weed. In order to manage this, it, it's it's easy to manage, or relatively easy to manage around, but it does take some, uh, there's going to be some growing pain. So there are going to be some times where, you know, you have the the full rye residue or, or the seedlings and you can get the root down below it and it, then your cover crops can be fine. Otherwise, if, it's, uh, if the rye gets ahead and, and develops a, a strong lelopathic shield over the field, uh, yeah, it's going to be very difficult to get a cover crop established. The other time where lelepathy is, is an issue with fall rye is after harvest. So if you spread the straw, as that straw rots, it will release that more lelepathy back into the soil. So that will come back and bite you. Once again, everything is manageable. Just knowing what your limitations are before you, you get into it. now when we start talking about the diversity of, of microbes uh dr christine jones she has a couple of wonderful youtube uh, videos where she talks about microbe quorums and what she has found and and it's been replicated through you know the chinook, chinook applied research association with dr zabella and you know many producers is that when we grow these cover crops and we have one or two species in it it's they, they work They're, it's okay where we really start seeing the magic is when we start seeing six, eight, nine, 10 different species of different functional plant groups growing at the same time. This is really when the magic really starts happening. And once again, its you know, I've, I've seen um, some blends that, where people are putting in 40 species. Well, it, it kind of defeats the purpose of, of diversity just because we've we've diluted some of the species maybe down too far that we should be increasing. But wonderful thing if you want to get it a little deeper into the microquorum, Dr. Christine Jones. So when we start talking about the functional plant groups, one of the, the easy visuals that I, I put together are, I just started out with one triangle where it was grass, legume and broadleaf. But by definition, the broadleaf is not a grass and not a legume. So... They plunked it into the broadleaf. So I broke it down: the broadleaf into the brassica, non brassicas, and forb. Within each one of these groups, uh, hopefully, we're going to have available warm and se- warm and cool season species. Within the warm and cool season species, we'll have annual, biennial, and perennial options. There are some issues, and once again, depending on on where you're located. So if you're kind of west of Highway 21 in Alberta, uh, growing a lot of warm season, especially legumes it i think is a waste of time uh just we don't have warm enough nights and it just they they falter so and you know going for the warm season brassica they, they just aren't there or a perennial brassica they, they just it isn't there we want to have as you know within the grasses to have uh you know warm and warm cool season species absolutely but then it's you know developing these blends to know when to use warm season when to use cool season when we're doing blends with both how does that work? So, with the cover crop blends, we're going to go through these functional plant groups. So, with grasses, the the key role to grasses is biomass. This is where the you know top growth. This is where we get our tons from, our grazing days, and they will have as a rule a very fibrous root system. So, very expansive. We have lots of choices within this group, both warm and cool season species, annuals, biennials, and perennials. We're growing lots of them already. It's just knowing which group does each, each of the species that we're growing, where does it fit? And what is its role? The, the, the nice thing about the grasses is it will accumulate phosphate because of this big fibrous root system. And the other nice thing we, we need to remember is they are, as long as we don't use a, f- a fungicide seed treatment, they are very mycorrhizal fungi friendly. But the problem with grasses is they require nitrogen uh, uh, supplementation. The other problem is, and once again, problem is, is, is the operative word, we already have a lot of grasses in rotation. But the, in a lot of cases, we're dealing with cool season grasses. So how do we, and, and whether they're annuals or biennials, how do we get more diversity into, the, into our, our rotations? When we deal with legumes, you know, their claim to fame is fixing nitrogen. Now, normally, they have a, a root or modified uh, fibrous root system. They tend to be highly mycorrhizal, minus the lupins what they do is they'll produce a a high feed quality when we have them in a rotation or a blend but the problem with legumes they are in order to fix that nitrogen they have a high phosphate requirement Uh, they have a weak secondary root system and all of this is back related to being highly mycorrhizal and the the mycorrhizae fungi is going to act as extra extra roots for the legume and why that's important is when we do mixes and we have a legume and and a grass growing together and both are highly mycorrhizal, and we get that my- mycorrhizal infection in both plants, that mycorrhizae will actually link those two plants together so that this way, the grass needs nitrogen, the legume produces nitrogen. So, the mycorrhizae can, it can act as the translator between the two of them saying, oh, yeah, the grass needs nitrogen, the legumes, oh, yeah, okay, can we crank up more nitrogen production? Legume says, yeah, but we need more phosphate. And guess what? The grass has extra phosphate, so the mycorrhizae will be able to shuffle phosphate over into the legume to get it into the nodules, so they can fix more nitrogen. So then they can share some of that nitrogen back to that that grass. A lot more complicated than that, but that's the reader digest version. The other thing about the legumes is they tend to be early successional plants in in plant ecology, so they are relatively short lived and. When Dr. Christine Jones, when she was talking in in Brandon, Manitoba a couple of years ago, she said the average pasture in the world is 60% forb and 40% grass, which really messed with my brain because she didn't say legumes. But when I was driving home, two and a half hours, I was able to think about it. And and in most pastures, yes, after about, you know, six, seven years, most of that legume component starts disappearing. And the whole once again, nature's intelligence is that legumes will start the process, it'll get the nitrogen going, get the mycorrhizae going, then they get out of the way for the natural end fixers in the soil. We're going to have the grazers coming in, grazing it, cycling nutrients, and, uh, you know, making this system work. So now when we start talking about the broadleaves, uh, so the brassica, non-brassica, and forbs, it's basically this is where we're going to gain a lot of plant diversity. And what we need to think of is the functional plant groups of, you know, what do these different species bring to the table? And uh, so, you know, when you're looking at things like sunflowers, so okay, the deep taproot, that late season pollinator Uh, Highly mycorrhizal, good drought tolerance, and you know feed value wise uh, for grazing, it's okay. Especially if you get the uh, seed head on it. But uh, if you're doing some some bales or or silage, unbelievable quality you can get out of out of things like sunflowers. So now we've gone through those those quick functional plant groups. Now we can start looking at once again these species. So you know what are your goals? When are you seeding it? How are you seeding it? What's the weather climate trends and our rotation? So when people come to me and they say, what do you think of this blend? Rarely have I seen what I would call a wrong blend, but I've seen these blends that have very limited use. So, you know, not enough uh, uh, plant diversity or there's too much of a certain functional plant group. I, I question why, why they, they have that much. So, if there's a reason, great, but in most cases, it's overrepresented. So, on the flip side, I haven't seen a blend that I couldn't have altered. Even blends I do myself, if you ask me to do up a blend, I'll do up a blend today. You ask me to do up another blend tomorrow and It'll be similar, but it's going to be different. And whether it's different, you know, in, in, the, in the amount of diversity or, or plant density, but that's all going to depend on how you're going to be. If, if you tell me that, okay, we're going to be broadcasting versus drilling it in, or I'm going to graze it to kill it, or you know, I want it to die this year, or you change your mind, you want to have it to overwinter. All of those things play in, uh, into account of, of how we're going to be managing this. One of the really interesting uh, trials that Jay Fure did at uh, the Medican Farms down at Bismarck is he went out to a cover crop blend and he grabbed these different species and he ripped the plants off at the soil surface, bounced it on his finger, and he, he cut it there. And the reason why balancing on the finger is important because that is 50% of the weight. So 50% is in the top and the 50% is below. When you look at where that is, if you're looking at a typical grass plant, it's going to be about uh, one third is the bottom and two thirds is going to be top because you don't have as much lignin. So when you look at these numbers and you look at the top half of the plant versus the bottom half of the plant, in a lot of cases, you're your protein is higher and relative feed value is better your TDN is better so when we are looking at managing grazing or even cutting for hay the more residue we leave on the bottom of the plant the better off the animals are going to be we're leaving some soil armor there we're managing our system a lot better and so when we're going through and you know looking for maximum tons at what expense is that so when we're shaving the ground and getting all of that annual ryegrass well the relative feed value is the same but our protein is significantly lower so if we just cut that a little bit higher, we're leaving some of the, you know, your, your nitrates, your sulfates, your higher lignin, all of that stuff in the field to feed the soil biology. And we're dealing with a, a higher feed quality. With that higher feed quality, it's way easier to then, you know, cool it down with a little bit of straw or roughage slough hay or something like that. So it's a real neat uh, just description of how the, 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 the feed values are way higher in the top than the bottom.
0: That's another thing you might want to keep in mind when you're making your decisions around cover crop blends. What's your management plan for all this? Which I'm going to go ahead and call step number three in our very basic cover crops planning guide that we're cobbling together in this episode. One thing I do wonder, and I wish I had Kevin here right now so I could ask him about this. But I do wonder if you can let the blend determine how you'll manage it. Or do you have to hammer out that management plan first? Then you go out there and select your blend. I'm going to steal a line from Kevin here and say it depends on your goals and likely the equipment and livestock you have access to. Quick reminder as to who Jay Fuhr is, because this isn't the first time his name has come up on this podcast. He's a soil health expert with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is part of the USDA. He's based in North Dakota. If you Google his name, you'll find a bunch of soil health talks he's given over the years. So at this point, with our cover crop, we've set our goals. We understand the functions of the plant groups. We've come up with a management plan. Now it's time to talk seeding rates. So when we're looking at
1: these cover crop blends... You have to remember that diversity is more important than the density of each species. And that's to a point, because once again, when I talked about having 40 species in and you know, a cover crop blend, you're going to be looking at 35 seeds per square foot, for example. You're not even getting one seed per square foot of each of the species. You're better off to go back. So you know, when we're looking at that diversity and you say you're going to be putting in oats, barley, wheat, triticale, well, those are four cool season annuals. Do you need all four of them? or is it better to focus in on two of those and simplifying it somewhat? The other thing we have to remember is that soil and the climate only supports so many plants per square foot. So, you know, going at uh, 60 seeds per square foot, unless you're in the, the, the Westlock area or something with real good fertility, uh, good rain, maybe, you know, cutting it back and being in that 45 to 50 range. Whereas if you're out in... Uh, in seven persons, being in that 25 is maybe going to be more realistic. The, the quick rule of thumb, when we're doing these mixes, whatever you use as your, your main species in your mix, you, what you want to do, so for if you're seeding oats and you're aiming for 30 seeds per square foot, what you want to do is if you're using oats as the main, look at about 120% of that monoculture total. So if 30, 30 seeds per square foot, 120% of that is is 36. Maybe cut the oats back a little bit and add, add this diversity. And when we're looking at doing these relay cover crops, what we may have to do is reduce the seeding rate of our cash crops. We normally seed at high seeding rates for our cash crops because what we wanna do is have competition. We wanna suppress weeds. In this case, we're going to be using these relay cover crops to do the same thing but we're going to do it better. We're going to be having something in that vegetative stage, releasing root exudates into the soil. We're going to be building soil with these things. Cutting the seeding rate of that, that cash crop, and maybe even you know, if you have the opportunity to go to wider rows, maybe that's a, another opportunity to, to be looking at. But at the end of the day, what we want to do, and what I do is I'm thinking both above ground and below ground. I want to be able to have this diversity fill up that whole canopy Above ground, and when I'm when looking at below ground, I want to be thinking about you know which ones are tap roots, which ones are fibrous, which ones are the warm season species, cool season species, the annuals, biennials, because that's all going to be accelerating how we build soil. Now there's some really neat graphics out there on the internet where they'll give you some some suggestions on how these these roots are supposed to grow, and when we start looking at hard pants and tough soils, they're not going to be ideal, picture perfect. But what we can do is this is where we want to be. These are the species we want. So, you know, if we have this hard pan and, you know, if we have these biennials growing, the first year it may be just sitting on top of that hard pan. But when we actually get some moisture into them, because in North America we have these two to one swelling plays, as soon as they get some moisture, we'll be able to get that biennial through that hard pan. And we can, once again, start fixing these soils. The other thing when, when when we're looking at these blends, you know, we want to think of these plant tolerances. So which species will tolerate hot, which ones will tolerate cold, which ones tolerate dry, which ones will tolerate wet. Those are the things we want because, you know, unless you, you know, listen to Drew Lerner or have pig sl- uh, spleens or something where you can get a real good idea of what's coming, we need to have that diversity and so you know these are the things we want it, it may be something where we you know we put a little bit of tough grass into into our mixes and it may never like for for three years it may never show up but in year four conditions are right that it starts expressing itself that's you know one of the things to to be looking at the other thing we need to do is keep you know one plant maybe more uh, that's, uh one of those plants stays in that vegetative stage throughout that whole growing season. It's crucial in building soil. Cotswold Seeds is a company based out of England. They have a great website. They have uh, some, some nice charts like this, so that this way you need a little bit of translator on some of it. So if you're you're not familiar, lucerne is alfalfa. And if you see cocksfoot, that's that's orchard grass. But it really gives you a, a really good idea of, you know, the rooting depth on, on some of these species and whether they're fibrous or they're they root. It's a really neat way to look at you know above ground below ground
0: Cotswold seeds which is spelled C O T S W O L D does have a great website great in the sense is it's just really easy to read it reminds me of the info on the back of a seed package they give you a good idea of the portions of legumes cereals and brassicas in each blend prices seeding rates etc etc It is definitely worth checking out to give you an idea of the different blends, their uses, and just cover crop possibilities. In the meantime, here's Kevin going over some of those different cover crop blends.
1: So we'll go through a couple of scenarios. Uh, these scenarios are, are a couple of years old, so the the pricing is a little different, but again, it gives you an idea of of how my brain kind of works when we're doing plants. So in scenario number one, we have a hundred acre field, heavy textured uh, soil, moisture is good. We have uh, we want to see a full season cover crop seeded in late spring. What our goal is, we want to cut this for hay, and then we're going to do some fall grazing. And what our problems are are slow water infiltration. We need hay we need some fall grazing, we want to build organic matter, and we want to terminate when it, freezes, it frees up. So in this case, we have some Italian ryegrass, we have some Japanese millet, we have some brassine clover, Persian clover, sunflowers, phacelia, and some turnip rape. And one of the things that my philosophy is, is when we're using these brassicas, especially when there's you know brassicas in the area or in your rotation, we don't need much. So just that, that 0.2 pounds an acre is enough for, you know in this case, when we're dealing with the uh, with a hay you get too high and then the, the dry down is just it just takes too long so something like that so when we start looking at functionality of this blend you put this into that triangle so the italian ryegrass is a cool season biennial. your japanese melts a warm season annual your oats i forgot down the bottom we put in 30 pounds of oats so your oats are a cool season annual your briseem clover is a cool season annual your persian clover is a cool season annual sunflowers are warm season annual In your non-braskas, in your braskas, here's your turnip rape, and in your forbs, here's your phacelia. Fairly well diverse first blend. We got it. We have every functional plant group kind of uh, represented. In scenario two, what we're going to do, so it's the same scenario. So 100 acres, heavy texture, good moisture, full season cover crop. Now what we're going to do is we're going to have this over winter. So we're going to do a cut of hay. We're going to get some grazing in the fall with the option of doing some spring grazing. And same, same issues, little water infiltration need, hay, fall grazing, building organic matter. So in this case, instead of just using Italian ryegrass, we're gonna throw some festiolium in. So festiolium is a hybrid between fescue and ryegrass. So we'll keep some Japanese melatonin, or clover, Persian clover, but now we're gonna throw in some sweet clover. So it's a biennial. Uh, still that turnip break, but now we're gonna throw in some chicory, which is another biennial type of, of plant. And instead of just going with oats, we're going to throw in some winter triticale. So now we have enough of those species in that are going to overwinter to give us uh, some potential, some spring production, or if nothing else, have a living root in the spring so that this way we're going to you know, get rid of any huge concerns of, of spring, spring or winter erosion or anything like that. So options. Once again, when we look at this, when we look at the functional plant groups, so our Italian ryegrass is at cool season biennial. Now the festiolium is at cool season perennial. The Japanese millet is still in there, oats, winter triticale is a cool season biennial. Look at the legumes, so the sweet clover is what we added, so cool season biennial. And uh, the you know, other change is the chicory, so we added a warm season biennial into the forbs. So once again, just that next step in, in our diversity. Uh, Scenario 3, so 100 acres, but now we're going to go to a sand with fair moisture, uh, still looking at cutting and grazing and having something over winter. So the biggest thing you'll see with this blend is we're still using the same species, but we're cutting back the number of seeds per square foot. Because when we start looking at the ability of that soil to maintain the number of plants growing we're not going to be able to maintain those the same number of plants. In the drier parts of the province on poorer soils, we just kind of ease back on on the number of uh, seeds per square foot. So in this case, scenario uh, number scenario number four, uh, this is going to be a, a cash cropping situation where you know we have some problems, you know, seeding any cereal or broadleaf. We have loam, fair moisture, full season relay cover crop, uh, spring seeded, and we want to reduce weeds and improve water infiltration. So we have slow water infiltration, but there's no livestock. We want to build organic matter, but we want to terminate it when at uh, at freeze up. So in this case, we'll use in with in this case spring triticale and it can be replaced with any other cereal so we'll put in some italian ryegrass and subterranean clover so the italian ryegrass because it's a biennial with poor winter hardiness it will stay in the vegetative stage right up until the snow flies and will winter kill subterranean clover is an annual late maturing annual clover I've yet to see it dupes uh, any seed production in, in Saskatchewan in the years that I've been using it. So it will grow, you know, two, two to four centimeters tall, and it kind of rosettes out. It'll grow underneath your, your spring cereal, and it'll be there. It'll be fixing nitrogen, building mycorrhizae, good taproot, so it'll help with uh, water infiltration. And once again, be green right up until the snow flies. So it's a low-maintenance, easy type of of uh, relay cover crop to use in most blends. Once again, you don't see the amount of diversity in this, but it sure is better than just growing just one monoculture of, of spring, uh, spring annual. So this relay cover crop that I was, I was mentioned earlier is uh, growing a cover crop underneath your cash crop or your, your, your green feed or whatever your, your main crop so that when you harvest that main crop, that relay cover crop will continue growing. And so this can be seeded at the same time as your as your main crop, or if you're, you're still using herbicides, after your herbicide application, seed that uh, relay cover crop so that this way it, it'll hopefully establish underneath your cash crop so that when you harvest it, you'll have something nice and green like what's, what's in this picture. And so once again, the question is, do you want it to freeze and terminate on that first frost or do you want it to continue growing right up until freeze up or do you want it to have it over winter and be there next year the 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 right answer is going to be within what your goals are so when we're growing these oil seeds and and cereals so this italian ryegrass, this is what it looks like in in the in the fall so this picture was taken in october so it's just a you know vegetative plant and when a plant is green and it's capturing sunlight it keeps continually pushing root exudates into the soil when that starts happening we start building soil because our spring cereals only have those root exudates in the soil when it's in that vegetative stage. So will only happen and we're feeding that soil for somewhere between 30 and 45 days. Whereas we have something green, Dr. Chris Nichols, her challenge for Western Canadian farmers is to have something green in our on our land for somewhere between 240 and 260 days, which is really, really possible just by using stuff like this. If you are using, um, you know, growing a, a, a wheat and you don't want to use Italian ryegrass, you could use something like winter wheat and once again, just you know, ten pounds an acre. But then you have to watch because it will overwinter, and then you you really have to manage it so that you we don't have any number one uh, volunteer issues, so that this weed doesn't go to seed on you in, in your oats or wheat if you're if you're going for for those markets. And uh, if you are going back to wheat again, uh, there could be some some disease issues that you'd be continuing on in in year two. So the the other option you can do is you can seed some of these these low growing clovers. You can seed those extremely early in the spring so that what you're doing, or even into the frost. So you can go out and you can see these clovers, they're gonna germinate, they're gonna start growing, so they'll grow through, you know, through April into the first part of May, then you can seed your cash crop straight into it. So now we're doing this, the process, what they they call in the States planting green. So those plants are there, they're they're fixing nitrogen, uh, they're starting to build a mycorrhizae, then when you seed your cash crop into it, that soil is all already alive and it's... When those seedlings hit the ground running, uh, they're they're going to establish really really quickly. So uh, the negative is you have to watch you know seeding something that is a high water user; it can dry out that that top soil. So that's that's the the downside of it. Yeah, the other option with it is yeah, uh, either seeding it with the cereal or seeding it after after herbicide application.
0: Dr. Chris Nichols is a name that comes up a lot in this podcast. Now, Dr. Nichols is a soil microbiologist from the states. But she's been based in Alberta for the last couple of years. She's also in that documentary about regenerative agriculture, which is called Kiss the Ground. and came out in 2020. The challenge to producers from Dr. Nichols that Kevin talked about there. It's actually covered in episode 20 of our podcast. It's called The Brown Revolution. And it's with, you guessed it, Dr. Nichols. Kevin mentioned relay crops when he went over those scenarios. Relay cropping is when you seed two or more crops together with the plan to harvest one earlier than the other. So the idea with all this is once you've harvested that faster growing crop, the baton, so to speak, is passed on to the slower growing crop, which can then really take off now because it has access to all the sunlight in the world. We talk about relay cropping, overyielding, land equivalency ratios, in our episode about intercropping, which is episode 34, final words of this episode are going to go to Kevin. He actually makes two separate points towards the very end that I think are a really nice way to wrap this one up. With these cover
1: crops, take a look at your rotation and ask yourself, how can you add diversity to these mixes? You know, look what functional plant groups are you using right now? Are we looking at warm season, cool season, annual, biennials, and perennials? What kind of root systems do they have? My key goals when I'm doing blends is I want to make sure that I have an active growing root in that system of that plant in the vegetative stage and keeping that going as long as we can and increasing that plant diversity. So if you if you do anything this coming year and to to take that first step forward, vegetative plant, uh, make sure there's something green growing as for as many days as we can. And once again, Dr. Chris Nichols, she said the importance of it is as we build soil structure through the growing season we need to have something green a carbon input late in the season because the microbes will then as the soil starts cooling will start weatherproofing their their homes their their soil aggregates when they have this waterproofing around the soil aggregates as we go through winter and in the spring when we get that the spring runoff that because we've waterproofed it now we're going to retain a lot of that that soil aggregate going into spring if we don't if we do what we have been What will happen is those aggregates we built all summer will fall apart in the spring. They'll slake. So it's really important to, you know, when we're building these houses, no sense knocking it down every year. Let's keep building onto it. So when we're going through this and and uh, as you start getting into regen egg and, and using cover crops and all the other the the tools we have within regen egg, don't worry about criticism from people you wouldn't seek advice from. So that when the fertilizer dealer is telling you that this doesn't work and uh, it, it's it's dumb and it's gonna fail, did you remember asking <laughs> them? Be the first question that I would ask. This is this is the neat thing with regen egg like all the principles it doesn't matter where you are in the world or what you're doing the principles are the same it's the trying to figure out the application of them so it's it's integrating systems and when we can start integrating these systems and you know working on the limitations of what we have and the, and the issues that we've identified yeah it, the the whole system you know we're looking for functionality at at the end of the day and whether it's Orchards, if it's uh, forestry, if it's uh, fruits and vegetables, native pastures, uh, cropland converting from uh, high input, improving an organic system, all of these things, it, it's, it's so interesting, but it goes back to functional carbon in our soil. It, it's, it's interesting, it's just trying to take a step back, looking at the big picture and how do we make the system better?
0: Rural Roots of Climate Solutions is an Alberta based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab, produces a farmer's blog, works with rural communities to develop their own renewable energy projects. And of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, please go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanca, Cheyenne Younger, and Kirsten Mountain. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders. This episode was done in partnership with Young Agrarians. My parts of this episode were recorded in Calgary. That means they were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.